It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I reached a crisis of conscience. Over three years, I watched this young man progressively get worse in terms of behavior and consequences. It ended up that he was charged as an adult for felony murder. And I'm literally holding this kid's hand at the age of 16 as he's to be charged as an adult and face a good amount of his life in prison. As a system, where did we go wrong? I felt like I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. I remember having this conversation with my father and just saying, I got to find something else to do because I can't keep doing this. This is going to kill me. I'm Buck Rocker, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Buck Rocker. Buck despite having one of the coolest names ever, is a really old friend of mine. We went to high school together at our little Hogwarts for Nerds boarding school. But today he's a family man and he's a lawyer that works for the federal government. And we talk about that at length, Sharon. Yeah, we kind of, we sort of gave him a hard time about it. But I think, I think it was a very interesting conversation. And I, I liked his energy. I love his last name, Mr. Rocker. And I just, I think that he has had such a unique journey. Like I think when he was talking about his career journey, especially in just those moments of being a lawyer, having to represent right now in his position, the government and the law, but then also kind of hearing how he felt as a public defender was interesting. Just kind of the, you know, both the internal conflict and also kind of maybe some of the, the passion points that he's, he's kind of experienced along the way. Yeah, because, I mean, in the courtroom, he's prosecuting immigration cases, and he is a child of immigrants. He's mm-hmm. half black. He's half Vietnamese. He grew up in rural Alabama. And he has he's always been very measured and thoughtful yeah. in his approach. And to kind of see, yeah, seeing that manifest in high school is a very different thing from 30, some almost 30 years later, right? As adults with real jobs, with families, with, with my job is silly compared to his, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And 
having is something he said, because I asked him about, you know, you ultimately work for the federal government and the federal government has a certain chain of command and a certain administration calling the shots right now. How do you do that? And he was like, well, if I don't do it, someone else will be, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a, an interesting take. It might not be a popular place to be, but if he wasn't in that seat, who do you want in that seat? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I thought that was a really deep point too. I had never really thought of it that way until he spoke about it in that way. But he, he was also really funny. I mean, I feel like we're kind of, you know, there were definitely moments when we dug pretty deep, asked some pretty hard questions. And then there were other moments when we were just having a good time with him. I don't want to spoil, I'm almost going to spoil it, but his, I loved his thing that no one expects about him because that to me was, I just, I really enjoyed that. I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason, but I, I think we should do some statistical analysis on everyone of Buck's background. And because I feel like the other guests have have had not necessarily that fun fact, but that they they know that skill. It's a skill yeah. that they all have. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little, st- that's very stereotypical. We're three for three. We're three. I think a sample <laughs> size of three for three so far. So I'm just saying, just saying. Cool. Well, get ready for a really fun and thoughtful conversation with our friend Buck. I am so excited to talk to my longtime high school buddy, Buck Rocker. Buck, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Good to have you, Mr. Rocker. What a great name. <laughs> well, thank you, Miss Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Tony with an H. Tell us a little bit about who you were before you were the famous ninja secret agent, federal agent (laughs) guy that I've read about. Can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, we met in high school, but who were you before that? Who's young buck from Alabama? So that's a great question. And it's, it's interesting because I was just having this conversation with my wife last night because this past weekend we watched the five bloods on Netflix, right? And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie, but it's in association with Spike Lee. It has Delroy Lindo, Chadwick Boseman, a couple of those guys in there. But backstory is that it's these five GIs that are black and they were in Vietnam during the war. Long story short, I didn't really feel the movie like I felt I should because I really wanted to support black actors and black films. And, and I think my wife hit the nail on the head. She said, it's too close for you. And there was a scene in the movie that was very poignant for me, which is this gentleman went back to Vietnam and he realized that he had a daughter that was there. And she experienced a lot of the ostracism for being not only the daughter of an American GI, but also being the black daughter of an American GI, right? And so my wife was correct with that because for me, I had a really hard time as a child, knowing where I fit in because being black and being Asian in small town Alabama was just a unique experience. Well, but can we unpack that? Because there's something that I don't think people know. Your dad was a GI in Vietnam. Explain the how I met your mother part first, I guess. Okay. So my dad was born and raised in Alabama in 1935 at the age of, I think, 17, so 52, his dad took him down to the Army recruiting office and shipped him off to Korea to go fight in the Korean War with the mindset that he would have a better chance of living fighting a war in Korea than living in Alabama 
at that time. Being a black man in Alabama. Exactly. So that kind of just lets you know where that is. So my dad fought in Korea, and then he was in Vietnam as well, which is where he met my mother. She worked at the same base that he was he was at. At that time, my dad was chief warrant officer. So he really wasn't in the combat as much as he was in logistics. So the supply chain of everything. And so it's funny because today is actually would have been their 47th anniversary. I lost my dad four years ago in September. And so like, it's interesting. I'm glad that we're, we're able to talk about him today. But yeah, that's how he met my mom. So my brother was born in 1965 in Vietnam. My sister was born in 1975 in Vietnam, a few months before the country fell. And then I was the surprise child that was born in 1978 in Anniston, Alabama. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell, man, in terms of how my folks met. Being half black, half Asian in this country, being half black, half anything, you just kind of round up to being all black. That's kind of how the world sees you, right? Correct. Yeah. But at the same time, you're coming home. And I remember your cousin went to high school with this too, and you were clearly had a lot of Vietnamese culture in you. So it's like you had this being a black kid in small town Alabama, because it wasn't Aniston, it was Ohatchee, right? Yes, Ohatchee. Biggest little town in the USA, man. And then you go home and you're a Vietnamese kid. Tell me a story of that. Black on the outside, Vietnamese at home in Ohachi. Because I grew up in the suburbs of Alabama. People are like, oh, you grew up in the six. Like, no, we had a shopping mall. I grew up in the (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you did. (laughs) No, my town was, it was Mayberry, man. It, It was exactly like Mayberry. When I was growing up, we didn't even have a traffic light. They put one in, I think, when I was either at ASMS, which is the boarding school we went to, Sharon. Hogwarts for nerds. Yes, Hogwarts for nerds. I believe they put the traffic light in because of Talladega. My town was about 40 to 45 minutes away from Talladega, Alabama, which is huge for NASCAR. It's one of the biggest venues in terms of NASCAR locations. And basically, it was just because of traffic. And so my town was maybe... 2,000 people population. The school was K through 12. But yeah. What was the makeup? Yeah. What was the demographic of that high school? Oh, gosh. So you remember the long lunch tables where you could probably seat 18 folks at the lunch table at any given time? Our demographic was at any given time in the cafeteria, you had one table of black kids and that was it. Everybody else was white. There was one other Asian family growing up, but they were... Caucasian and Asian, so they were Wasians. Wasians, Wasians, yes. And they never were, heard that one before. Well, if I'm Blasian, they can be Wasian, right? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's only fair. <laughs> but they were Korean. Their mom was Korean, so we were the wrong kind of Asian to really hang out with each other, right? I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. And then we had one family that was Native American, and that was it. Everybody else in the school was was white. So you, did you sit at the black table then, I assume? Yeah, yeah, I did, but then I didn't. And this goes back to me trying to find a place to fit in, right? In my grade, there were three black kids, me, one other guy, and then a girl. And that was it for our grade level. And so, you know, by, by default, you, you hang out with not only the two other black kids, but you have to be friends with with the white kids that are there too. Just you don't have a choice. It's lack of options, really. And not that they weren't good people. It's just 
lack of options. That's who you associate with. But the thing was for me, I would always get asked when I went somewhere as a kid, what are you? And that's a hell of a question to ask yeah. a kid, yeah. right? Yeah. Because you don't know. I'm human. That's what I am. But you knew they meant more than that, right? What are you? You don't look black. You don't really look all the way black, but we don't know what you are. Did black people ask you that or yes. white people yeah. ask you that? Yeah. Okay. And so I was just telling my wife this story the other day. Our town is on a, the Coosa River in Alabama. And there was a spot where you could go swim. It was kind of like a little beach area. You could go swim. They had lifeguards, whatever. And so I would tell my wife that when we go swimming there, black kids would come up and ask, well, what are you? White kids would just be like, well, we know you're not white. So it doesn't really doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter. You're not white. <laughs> there really weren't a lot of Asian people. But like I said, with this other Asian family, it was kind of like, well, you're not our kind of Asian. So there's really not a lot for us to talk about. And part of that maybe was just a time in the 80s and 90s where it just wasn't the same kind of solidarity that you see now amongst minorities. But it was a hell of a thing for a kid to have to process growing up. So really, it was just my sister and I that really stuck together a lot. Did you ever feel like you had to pretend or be someone else to fit in? Yeah, I did have that feeling. But I would always talk to my dad about those things. And for me, it was just, I found out very early on, just be me. Because I would never fit in to somebody else's expectation of what I should be. I was never going to be black enough. I don't even know what that means, right? I would never be Vietnamese enough because I don't speak the language very well. I don't speak it almost at all. So I was always going to be in this nether realm, this in-between. And that's not a place that you're going to be successful when you try and emulate somebody else's expectations, of you. you know, it was interesting. So fast forward however many years, high school, that's where we met. I guess we would have been 15. Math modeling. <laughs> that's yeah. where we met. Yeah, math modeling, Dr. Koch. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I felt like that high school, that boarding school we went to was a nice, for me at least, and I, I feel like a lot of the people we hung out with, it was a nice little reset button on everything. At least I just was like, fuck it, I'm going to lean into who I am. I'm into comics, not into sports, probably a little too emo for everybody. <laughs> but- <laughs> We had a, either Joey or Joe, one of them told my wife when they met her, he's like, yeah, Roman was emo before emo was a thing. <laughs> I was like, no, but so we all hit the reset button and you were the black kid across all. You were the black kid across yeah. all. That's who you were. And actually, I don't think it was until maybe even our second year that you room with Y, your cousin. I knew who was your cousin, but all of a sudden with chopsticks in the dorm room or I just, you became more Asian your senior year to me. And I think it was because I don't know. And the point is, yeah, even my perception of you was Buck's our black friend. And then eventually your secret power was, Oh, I'm also Asian, by the way. And I would always joke with people. It depended on how I felt that day, what culture I wanted to associate with. If I felt like people were being just real asses to me, then I, I must have been black that day. If people were treating me good and I was doing well on whatever, then I was like, oh, I must have been Asian that day. Whoa, whoa, hang whoa, on. Whoa, like, yeah. Seriously. I want to hear about that. that. Yeah. I want to hear about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some of you say half half joking, but you know, there's always truth. No, there's truth. That's right. Yeah, right. But yeah, I think that that's something that I've always felt. And I know not necessarily as much at ASMS because I do think that that was one of the anomalies when people think of the great state of Alabama, right? 
they definitely think it's a lot of backwards-ass people, which there can be, but that's in every state that we encounter, right? ASMS was unique in the sense that you had a bunch of really smart kids that were not so myopic in how they saw the world, right? And that was evident in the fact that they left their towns to go to this bigger, better opportunity. I have a counter argument though, though. Okay. Tell me, please. (laughs) I was never a cool kid ever. Like I've accepted that now, but at ASMS, I let go. And I do think we didn't have as many clicks at ASMS as the previous high school I was at or junior high even, but I think there was just a line straight down the middle. And it was, I hate to say this, the cool kids and the uncool kids, but what defined the cool kids from the uncool kids, at least for me, and I think I was in, we were on Todd's Hall. We were in like the cool, right? you, you were there too, right? But in our, the cool half were the people who decided to let go, reset, be themselves. The uncool half of the school was the people who decided to try to hold on to the clicks. I don't want to throw a name under the bus, but like, <laughs> and I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names. Even oh, go, no ahead. Names. go ahead. <laughs> there was a guy named Joey and his roommate was Brett. And at any other school, maybe they would have been preppy, smart preppy, but because they tried to hold on to those artifices, it didn't click. And we had preppy people like Skippy and John, right? (laughs) Yes. But they were like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to be who I am. And I'll hang out with that weird black kid and that weird Indian kid and that skater kid, Damon, et cetera. And so to to your point of being myopic, I think half of the school chose to be myopic and the other half chose to hit the reset button. And for me, that was liberating because... I was just like, yeah, screw it. I'm a weirdo and I'm going to hang out with weirdos and non-weirdos alike. We're all weird. Actually, that's the thing I learned. We're all weird. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head, right? And yeah, I guess I should go back and and qualify my statement. It's, it was a very generalized statement and observation. You sound like a lawyer, Buck. (laughs) (laughs) Go figure, right? We did encounter those folks that yeah, you can be really smart, really intelligent. That's not to say that smart, intelligent people can't be assholes because clearly we can. So you're right. I do think that the folks that I tend and I've always tended to get along better with are the folks that don't pretend. They're not fake. They're just, you are who you are. And at that point in time, you allow me to see and I allow you to see who I am and we can make informed decisions if we want to kick it and be cool with each other. And I appreciate that. And I will say that that's one thing I do miss about living in the South is that good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent, you kind of know where you stand with people. And that's that's something to be said for that, as opposed to when you move away from there. If folks have biases, they tend to- They're secret. They're secret. Exactly. They're, they're very covert with their biases, right? Yeah. Yeah, if I see a rebel flag, if I'm yeah, if, if I'm driving through small towns of Alabama to get from Mobile to Montgomery, and you pull over to get gas, and you see a gas station with a Confederate flag, I'm like, I'm gonna go to that other gas station. Right? Uh, like, you know, it's about five miles down the road. Yeah, I'm I'm good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, I do appreciate that, if nothing else. So we lost touch for years. You went to the lesser university in our great state. Um, oh, geez, you guys stop. You mean the one that the just won the anniversary? <laughs> the one that now has a, a former coach as a United States senator. Nah, he's running against. Yeah, he won the, you know, yeah, he won the primary. I'm genuinely interested to see how that's going to play out. 
because it's a very red state, but it's also a very divided state by school allegiance. Like, are there going to be a bunch of Republican Alabama fans who go vote for the Democrat? Well, think about this, right? And I know we've we've kind of gotten sidetracked, but think about how ridiculous this situation is. You're absolutely right. He is the coach that beat your lovely university six years in a row, right? Six times. Not to be petty, but it was six. You know I'm a fake sportsman. You know I actually don't care, right? <laughs> oh, but I do, right? <laughs> I know. That's why I just want to show you how ludicrous this situation is. And it's very easy to say that yeah, half, if not more, of the state are huge Alabama, University of Alabama supporters. Yeah, it's a 50-50 split. Yeah, right, I mean, right, right, right. you're one or the other. You have to be one exactly. or the other. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's no in-between. So he had the president come and was campaigning for him. And in the campaign rally speeches, he disrespected the demigod that is Nick Saban, right? Calling him the coach for the the coach for the other team. Yeah, the coach for your lovely university, right? That I'm sure people think that he can do everything, even walk on water and change water to wine and all that other good stuff. Second coming of the bear. Exactly, right? But he was legit calling him the wrong name. And folks still went out and voted for Tommy Tuberville. Right. So I'm just I'm just amazed by the whole thing. Right. So it's just it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Yeah, Southern football culture is a thing to be studied and admired. I think. Yes. But the fact that it's on the political stage now, too. Yeah, it's absolutely. so wild. But OK, so what I really want to get into is grown up. Box. So oh, okay. you went to the other university. Then you went to even another university and you got a law degree and you became a lawyer. Yeah. And you didn't just become a lawyer, man. You went to work for the government. <laughs> and so that's first cool as shit, by the way. But walk me through that. I mean, yes, the actual career trajectory, but what led to that decision? Why law? Why federal law? And I mean, and we'll unpack this later. Maybe you can demystify how it's built, but you're in like immigration law. Can you walk me through that entire journey in your mind as a black yeah. kid from Alabama? Yeah. So... It all started in fifth grade, man. Not moving forward, not backward, Mark. I love that. I no, love that. It started in fifth grade. I can I can pinpoint the year and the teacher it was Mrs. Touchton's fifth grade class. It was a split fifth and sixth grade class. She had us write about what we wanted our career to be when we grew up, and I put down one of two things. I wanted to be a naval aviator because I was in love with Top Gun. Still love that movie. Can't wait for the sequel to come out. Or a sports lawyer. And the reason I'm behind the sports lawyer is because at the time, I was like, you get 5%. If I get 5% of what Michael Jordan makes, I never have to work for anybody else again. (laughs) So flash forward, I'm at the other university, the better one. And I tried to walk onto the baseball team at Auburn. And I got hurt mountain biking of all things and realized that, Hey, this is not going to happen. And it's a blessing in disguise because I never probably would have made it to the pros anyway. So I was like, what, what is there left for me to do? And at the time I was majoring in finance and economics. And I said, well, you know what? I'm gonna go to law school. I'm going to go to law school and I want to be a sports lawyer. So I went to Tulane because it was one of two schools at the time that offered sports law a focus in sports law. The other was Marquette. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to go spend winters in Wisconsin. So Tulane it was, it was New Orleans. I was like, why not? So I got my certification in sports law, graduated, came out to Arizona, 
because my folks had retired out here. And I took the bar, passed it. And then I was like, holy crap, I have no connections out here. Nothing. So I got to find a job because student loans are coming due in six months. (laughs) And so I applied everywhere. And the first place that, that gave me an opportunity was the public defender's office in Pima County. I became a public defender. I was in the juvenile court for almost three years and absolutely loved every minute of it. Every minute of working with the kids. My heart is smiling. I don't know if heart smile, but literally that's how I feel right now. Yeah. I know. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But I reached a point of having a crisis of conscience only because one of the first cases I had when I became a public defender was probably one of the last cases I had. And over the three years that I was there, I watched this young man progressively get worse and worse in terms of behavior and consequences. And it ended up that he was charged as an adult for felony murder. And at the age of 16, I'm literally holding this kid's hand as he's doing a transfer hearing to be transferred down to the adult court to be charged as an adult and get amount of his life in, in prison. And at that point in time, I said, where did we go wrong as a system? Where did we go wrong? And I felt like I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. And I, I remember having this conversation with my father and just said, hey, I got to find something else. I got to find something else to do because I can't keep doing this. This is going to kill me. And so I started looking around and applying. And by luck, Customs and Border Protection had a, a position open. And I interviewed with them. And that's what happened. What year was that when you were, went over to CBP? 2008. February of 2008 is when I started with Customs and Border Protection. And they detailed me to the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Arizona to help prosecute border crimes. And by that, it's just a nice way of saying I was prosecuting people for coming here illegally, simply for coming here illegally, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. So I spent the next eight years doing that. Every day, I would prosecute 75 people a day in federal court for simply crossing the border. Oh my gosh. So yeah, interesting thing is I think it's over, if you do the math, it's over 50,000 cases that were prosecuted by me for doing that simply for no other reason. Yeah. And then I decided I didn't like that anymore. I, I wanted experience as a real attorney, so to speak, for customs and border protection. And I wanted to come back to the main office and do employment law. Did that for about a year and realized that that's really not my cup of tea. My personality type is better suited for the courtroom to litigate, to think on my feet. So then I had a buddy who was working with ICE and he said, hey, we're hiring. So I applied with ICE in 2017. I onboarded with them and I've been there since prosecuting, well, not prosecuting, but litigating asylum and other relief cases in immigration court. So when you started in 08, it was the end of the Bush era. Obama was inaugurated in 2009. And I'm the biggest fanboy of Barack Obama, but he litigated more people and deported more people than Bush did. I believe that's right. But it was a moderate era of politics, never mind the rhetoric that was going on, but the kind of the hand at the wheel of the country was a little bit more measured. 
than yes, the yes, dumpster yes. fire we see today. <laughs> yeah. But then the world changed in November 16, January 17, when you're shifting again. And I mean, so I guess the question about that is serving in these as a lawyer in these two areas, CBP and now ICE. And I know there's like two ICEs too, right? So, but what was the tenor change? What was the shift? Because it, I mean, these are offices where the, pre- the face of the president is in the office. Right, right. So going back to 2008, when I started, you're right, it was under Bush two, so W. On the way out though, on the way out. Right, but the program was his program, started under his administration. It was continued under the Obama's administration. So the difference, what I, what I noticed was during the Obama administration, there was a lot more prosecutorial discretion, if you want to put it that way. What does that mean? There was a lot more ability to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't prosecute this person, or maybe we shouldn't. This person is not a priority for us in terms of removing them from the country. Yes, in terms of the color of the law, the law has been violated, but if we have a finite amount of resources, let's focus on the ones that really, I think we can all agree, maybe we don't want them here. I'm going to probe on that. So what is an example of people that through prosecutorial discretion kind of get a pass, kind of get a warning, and the ones who you throw the book at them? So in my years of doing it, so let's say I'm going on 12 years, what I have found is an oversimplification of breaking immigration or immigrants that are here without authorization, kind of into three three groups, right? And this is just my own way of doing it. So if we have group one, let's say it's the folks that have no immigration, no criminal history here in the United States, okay? Then we have group two, which they have some immigration history. Maybe they've been here before, they've left voluntarily, or they've maybe even been removed before. And that those people also have some type of criminal history. That criminal history could be driving without a license, a disorderly conduct. It could be domestic violence. We just have to look at a, each individual person. Case by case. What that, yeah, case by case. And then we will have group three, which are the folks that have been here before. They've been removed before. And they have very violent criminal history. It could be weapons offenses. It could be drug offenses in terms of not possession for use, but possession for sale. Or distribution, okay? Folks who have aggravated assaults, sexual assaults, those things, right? Those are the folks that I would say that's your priority. Bad hombres. Yeah, bad hombres, right? But we're not using that phraseology, right? (laughs) Those are the folks that I think we could all agree like, hey, you know what? I might be a little hesitant if you were my next door neighbor to ask you to watch my house while I'm gone. Yeah. 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 So if we have a finite amount of resources, and I bring you people from group one and group three, prosecutorial discretion would say, well, you know what? Let's not worry about group one right now. Let's focus on group three. Okay. And I think that was a lot more of what happened during the period that President Obama was in office. And right now, what we see is, hey, let's just go after everybody. And use group three as the shield. That's the rhetoric saying everyone is in group three, or that's the perception of the marketing of it, right? Right, right. right. I mean, it's all how you spin it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you stay? Because I mean, it's been three years of hell, at least from the outside looking in. There was this one picture, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but when when they started locking kids up at the border, not saying we didn't do it before, but there was one picture of a little girl crying and it looked like my daughter. Like it literally looked like my daughter. 
who would have been two at the time. And look, it's easy for me to be in a blue bubble on the East Coast to be angry and shake my fist and listen to NPR or Pod Save America. But I don't live in a state that's, well, we border Canada. You got to watch out for those guys. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Rough really Canadian, right? yeah. Hey, really awesome Aladdin co- costume. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> too soon? But It's never too soon, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Good point. You're down there, though. You're down there. You're in the thick of it. Your organization works for an administration. The, job, the work has to be done, I guess. So, like, what's your calculus of staying down there, doing the thing you do, where is it now a shift to everyone's in group three? No, there's not a shift that everyone's in group three. It's the shift is we're going to focus on everybody, right? So I could very well have a case that's in front of me where the person is clearly a group one, so to speak, right? But here, let me flip this question back on you, right? You know me. You've known me for a very long time. Who would you rather have handling a case like that? Or somebody that says, hey, everybody's group three. Come hell or high water, everybody's group three. And so to answer your question, the reason I stay is because I feel like I can still accomplish justice in the courtroom. And I feel like I have that reputation of the right thing will happen exactly how it's supposed to happen when I handle a case. Are there ever times when you walk away from a case or when a decision is made and where you feel like the things that you had to do because of the law, quote unquote, and I'm going to quote the word law, put that in air quotes, conflicted in some way with your own values and morals, or even just your own personal experience. I mean, it's so interesting because when I think of it, someone who would be super senior within ICE, it's not someone that looks like you, to be honest, right? I don't think of the I mean, he, does, he does have a goatee. That's true. <laughs> and you are, you're pretty big and buff. You got that going for you. But I don't think of a person of color or a son of immigrants or anything like that as being someone enforcing laws that are impacting other people that are very much like us at the core. So backstory with that, Sharon, is I was telling Rama when he was commenting on my goatee, <laughs> why I had it. I said, part of it is because it's I'm home teleworking for COVID and I have nothing else better to do and why not, right? But the other part is I told him back when I was with CBP and I was doing this program, some of the detainees or defendants gave me this moniker of El Diablo Negro. And so, which is the black devil, right? And so I said, hey, might as well just have some fun with it. So yeah, it's not lost on me that... I'm a person of color, and I am, in essence, prosecuting other people of color. And it's not lost on me that half of my family, my mom's side, are all immigrants that are here. And so I do see the irony in it. But once again, what I will say is before folks really see or pass judgment on what I'm doing, I would say, Please take time to, if you're able to, come into a court hearing and see what happens because I'm a firm believer that for most of these people, that time that they're in court is going to be their first experience with the American judicial system, right? And I want them to feel like I feel about how the legal system should work, which is it is not perfect, but it is the best system that 
I think is on the face of the earth. I want them to come in and feel like they've had the opportunity to be heard, to tell their story, to be treated with respect and dignity. And that's how I treat everybody. And if your case does not fall into the confines of the law, it's not because I'm some wonderful magic attorney that can wave a pen and make the government prevail. It's because the law clearly states these are the things that are covered. And let's say your fear of crossing the street because your neighbor has really awful dogs. That's why you came to the United States. The law doesn't cover that. So it's not because I did anything special. It's just because it's not covered. No more, no less. But you had the opportunity to tell the judge why you wanted to come here, why you think you should be able to stay in the United States. And that's what I think is extremely important. I personally think it's your story is a waste of time or not. I want you to be able to tell your story because at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want is to be heard, to be seen and to be heard and to feel like we've been seen and heard. Yeah. What percentage of cases have you personally heard that people don't get convicted of committing you mean where, they, where they are able to obtain some type of relief and are able to stay in the United States? I would say it's less than 50%. And honestly, it comes down to the judge as well, right? Because I just present our side and the judge is the, is, is the one who makes the decision, not me. And so there are certain judges that maybe they see it one way and a different judge sees it a completely different way. So it's sometimes the luck of the draw too. Got it. You, you mentioned earlier, it goes without saying, half your family are immigrants. All of your family are colored some way or the other. How do they feel about you doing this? <laughs> or, what, or, or I guess what, it's not, it, it, we, are, we are going of, deep. Well, yeah, we're, we're asking well, a lot of loaded questions. It's a little bit about, actually, okay, I'm going to rephrase. <laughs> what kind of questions they ask you? And then I want to ask the exact same, that so of your the family that's not your family, your wife and your kids, your, your parents, your cousins, your, your siblings. But then after you answer that for the older family, your, your current family, your wife, your kids, et cetera, what kind of questions do they ask you about your job? Well, so let me put it in context. My sister spent a summer working for the Southern Poverty Law Center in- Big fan. In Montgomery, Big fan. Alabama. Big fan. I'm a card-carrying member. Big so fan. my sister spent a lot of her career as a public defender- in Atlanta. And now she's a a judge in Atlanta. So she and I definitely had some very interesting conversations. But aside from my sister, I usually don't get a lot of questions from the rest of my extended family, my mom's side of the family. And if I do, it's usually a immigration, hey, what about this? And I'm like, I can't really answer that for you uh, <laughs> kind of deal, right? Well, I know I got to unpack that because I don't know what kind of question you can't answer. Buck. like, it's like when I ask my lawyer or doctor friends, they, the first thing they always ask them a question. They're like, first of all, this is not official advice, but let me look at your rash. <laughs> right. What are the questions you can't answer? What are the so, types of questions you can answer? They say, well, hey, I have this situation right here. What should I do? I say, I can't answer that. I'm not your lawyer. I would suggest you get a lawyer or you consult a lawyer about this. Or sometimes it's the, and I'm sure Raman, your sister gets this because as a doctor, right? People just assume, oh, you're a doctor. You can answer these things right here. But you know what I tell them? I I can't tell you the first thing about wills, trusts, and estates. 
that's not my area of expertise. So but here's the kind of lawyer you should call. Exactly. Answer that question. Exactly. Yeah. I can answer that, but I can't answer your specific question because I don't know anything about it. And anything that I would tell you would legitimately be malpractice because I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I haven't taken that class since law school. So that's the last time I've looked at something like that. But I say, hey, I know somebody that can handle that. If you want their number, I can give it to you. So that's usually what I get asked. In terms of my current situation, in terms of my wife and my children, my oldest daughter knows what I do. She has a pretty good idea. She's 14. How old are they? She's 14, 14, 7. Yeah, 14, 7 and about to be 5. So the two younger ones know that I go to work, that I'm a lawyer, but in terms of the ins and outs of what I do, they don't really know. My wife, she's a federal employee too, and she works for Department of Justice, so she understands you go with the administration. And before she was with the Department of Justice, she was military, so you do what your boss tells you to do in terms of the chain of command. If it's a morally repugnant order or something that you think is unethical or illegal, then you don't have to do it. Have you ever had one of those moments? I've had some moments where I've definitely had some deep conversations with management about what I think should happen. And it might be counter to what the standing order could be. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not, but I don't take it personally because I can't. That is a good way to drive yourself crazy. All I can tell myself is that I advocate it the best I could for the position that I believe in. And the decision is a decision and it's not my decision at that point in time. I've never been in a situation where it's been something that I perceive as unethical. So yeah, I think that that's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a lawyer. (laughs) You didn't really answer the question, but you kind of did, but you didn't. That makes him, well, hang on, sort of by, by not answering the question, he actually, I think, answered my next question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you guys will see where I'm going. Where do you, what do you want to be when you grow up, Buck? What do I want to be when I grow up? I mean, it, an Avenger. It, it, you want to be an Avenger. I know well, you. In your line of work, there are, you can stay the course and maybe that's totally cool. I envy people because I still haven't figured out what I want to be when I grow up, right? Sharon gives me therapy on this. I do. Oh my gosh. It's really, it's, I should start charging him. (laughs) But in your line of work, there's a few avenues that let you continue to do the work, but in a different way with a different title, right? And so what's the path? What's the dream job of where you take your career in the next 10 to 20? Ideally, if I were to stay in the legal field, which I'm so far in now, I, I don't think really there's any going back. I would like to be a judge. That was okay. Sorry. I, I was like so sure that was what it was. Right, like, right. I actually wrote that down in my notes. I was like, does he want to be a judge based on some of the stuff he's been saying? Let me put it this way, right? I applied a few years ago to become an immigration judge. It, it didn't work out for one, one reason or another. And it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. But the point is, I've been going back and forth. I've always told myself that I would love eventually to get back to working with youth and I would love at some point in time if the opportunity presented itself to apply and and go through the process to maybe become a judge at the juvenile court because I do feel that's where I could have the best impact is working with kids, especially kids of color, because that's really who I remember seeing the most, disproportionately more in the legal system in, in Pima County. And so that's ideally what I would like 
to do. If you could give one piece of advice to young Buck and Ohachi or sitting in that dorm room with Roman and Damon at ASMS, what's something old man Diablo goateed Buck? <laughs> well, you didn't want to say Diablo Negro? I'm not going to say it. You can. <laughs> Listen more. Listen more to what your dad really, the advice he had to give to you. Yeah, the man was just wise beyond comparison. And I think I absorbed maybe half of what he said, and I turned out pretty good. But if I would have listened more, yeah, I think I think I would be better off. Not that I'm bad off right now, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Just listen more. I, I'm a firm believer there's a reason God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? It's to listen more and talk less. So I'm going to pivot a little because I was reading your notes to us, and you mentioned that you were pretty sure your wife was going to run you over <laughs> right before yeah. you proposed. I want to hear this story. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> we went up in, gosh, it was September, so Labor Day weekend of 2011. Yes, Labor Day weekend of 2011. My wife's mother and stepfather in Colorado Springs. And I don't know if you all have ever had the opportunity to go to Colorado Springs, but there's a place called the Garden of the Gods, and it's absolutely just beautiful. And so I had planned to take her hiking and at sunrise propose to her. And we had flown in the night before, and I think we took a red eye, so we got in late, and I kept telling her, like, hey, okay, in the morning we're going to wake up, we're going to go hiking at sunrise. She had no idea that this is what I had planned, but there was this window of time that we had free because we had all these other activities planned with the family. And so like, this is the time. And her mom knew everybody knew except for her. And the alarm goes off. I'm like, Hey, let's wake up. Let's go. No, I want to sleep. Okay. So I'm like, crap, I'm not a pushy person. So my thought was if I wake her up and be insistent, she's going to know that something's up. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm very laissez-faire. You do you, and that's fine, and I'll just figure it out from there. So she had this photo shoot with a photographer to have some pictures done, and I went out to the brewery with my soon-to-be stepfather-in-law, and he and I got a little lit, and... <laughs> <laughs> Liquid, courage. Liquid yes, courage. Yes, yes. So we came back home, and we had to run, I think it was... To Sally's to pick up something and on the way back I'm I sit there and I tell my wife like hey yeah just so you know the ring that I got you that I gave you for Christmas I lost it when John and I were at the brewery I was playing with it and, and I was filling with it on the on the bar and I dumped it in it and it just went somewhere and I said I'm really sorry and she's like, oh, so yeah, I said, well, it's kind of fitting anyway that I lost your ring. And so the whole time she's looking at me like this mofo, like he done brought me home and he's going to break up with me in front of my family. I'm going to kill him. And she's driving this car, right? And so at this time I can see the white knuckles on the gear shift and she's pulling into the driveway and she has this look on her face. Cause I said, yeah, you know, I realize I don't want to be your boyfriend anymore. And she had put the car in park. And I said, well, come on, let's get out the car and let's finish talking. And she's just looking at me 
I'm like, uh. Your sense of timing is terrible. Yeah, no, she's looking at me like, uh-uh. And, uh-uh. and what kind of sentence is that? I don't want to be your boyfriend anymore? That's an awful way. A terrible opener. No. No, it's a segue. <laughs> you just don't appreciate the situation. Hey, hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. You do the prosecutorial discretion. I'll do, we'll do the marketing. We're the marketers here. Yeah, that's bad messaging. Really bad messaging. Well, you know, the, the irony of me telling you this story right now is that my wife is standing at the doorway looking at me like, uh-huh. Uh, still mad about this story, right? <laughs> and so I said, hey, just get out the car. And she doesn't turn the engine off. She has got this look of death and determination on her face. I love it. I I'm love gonna, it. I'm going to kill this dude. Yeah, yeah. And so I said, no, literally, like, I'm not getting out the car until you turn off the car and get out the car with me. Because in the back of my mind, I'm like, she's going to run me over. Like, she's straight up as pissed right now. She's going to run me over. I wonder why. Right? Right? And so finally she gets out the car. I just tell her, like, hey, I don't want to be boyfriend anymore because I want to be your husband. I drop down to a knee. I pull out the ring. And then it goes from this look of I'm going to kill you to this look of I'm going to kill you because you put me through this. Exactly. But it all worked out in the end. She said yes. And I said, well, hey, this is what you get for not waking up and going hiking. (laughs) So, yeah. And that's how it all began. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. (laughs) We have covered a lot of territory. (laughs) What do you think, Sharon? Should we subject Buck to the speed round? Yes, I think he has earned his speed round. Buck, you ready? I am ready. What is something about you? Jeez, we've, we've literally covered probably 20 answers to this question. But, so what is something about you that people don't expect? I'm the stereotypical Vietnamese kid who has a no license. That is right. I keep it current. I have from 1998, no, 97 until now, I still have my no license. And what does it take to keep it current? Every couple of years, you got to go back and perform a manicure on somebody. I stay in practice by doing. He has three girls. Oh, yeah. And a wife. So I stay in in playing shape, so to speak. Decorm. That's right. But no, I just send my money in and they renew my license every year. And I always keep it in my back pocket just in case. One day I might just get so mad at at work. I'm like, you know what? The hell with it. And I'm going to go do nails. It probably will never happen, but it's always just my fallback, right? I have a podcast idea for you. You should like do podcasts while you do people's nails. (laughs) Like literally interview them while you're doing their nails. That would be fantastic. You come across some very interesting people and and some great conversations, actually. Yeah. really do. (laughs) Okay. What is a book, movie, or television show that you would recommend with characters that you can relate to? Oh, wow. So, wow, that's a good one. But book, movie, or television show, I would say The Avengers. I like Tony Stark. I relate to him in the sense that can be very witty. Sometimes your mouth can get you into trouble. Definitely longs for more time with his dad. And pretty smart. Not obnoxiously smart. I'm not that guy, but I like to dress nice and those things too. Yeah. Nice. Iron Man. Yeah. You want to be Iron Man? I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> What's your favorite mom dish? Ooh, favorite mom dish. There's a dish my mom makes. It's called goi ga. It's hot mint and shredded cabbage with some shredded chicken in there, some vinegar and garlic, and some fish sauce. I really enjoy it. 
it's delicious. I, I only funny. recently discovered fish sauce in the last, I guess, almost like 10 years being married, but like, what an amazing invention. <laughs> yeah, fish sauce really is good. the bomb. Yeah, it, it it's really amazing. is. It's good. What's your least favorite food? Anything seafood, which is ironic since I don't mind eating fish sauce, but I don't like food. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like seafood. It's not an allergy thing. It's just I don't like the taste. It makes me want to gag. So anything that comes from the water, I won't eat it. That is really ironic because fish sauce is very fishy. Right. Right. Yeah, it's very fishy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. I tell folks that, hey, culturally speaking, I should like seafood being black and being Asian. I really should. I just, I don't. I've tried it. I've subscribed to the philosophy that, hey, maybe over time, your taste buds change. You might acquire this taste. Nope. Uh-uh. No, even the other day, I, I eat vegetarian sushi. And if the seaweed is too fresh, I can't do it. Just can't. Can't. I've tried. <laughs> 42 <laughs> years in, it's still not going to sit with me. <laughs> It's a good thing you're in Arizona. I know, right? Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast while doing their nails is optional? Well, I thought about this one long and hard. And if I had my way, I would interview my dad. I always enjoyed our conversations. And I miss them tremendously. And I miss the wisdom that he would always share in his conversations. And I would love to have another conversation with him. Okay, last question. You ready for the last question? Absolutely. What does being a model minority mean for you? That is, I feel, a very loaded question. I know you've had other podcast guests that have somewhat called you out on the phraseology of it all, right? But never a litigator, at least. Right. <laughs> we are so screwed, Sharon. <laughs> I know. Like, what are you teeing up us? What are you no, teeing no, up no. here? <laughs> if I look at model minority, who's idea, right? And I know you've said, you know, this is Reagan's phrase, but whose standard are we looking at, right? Because is it a Eurocentric standard of what they want us to be? Or as a minority, are we saying what the standard is? But once again, whose standard? Are we trying to live up to somebody else's idea of what we should be? So that's kind of where I take issue with it. But To answer your question, what it means to me to be a model minority is for all of us, no matter what our color or sexual orientation or financial demographic is when we feel like we've achieved those goals we've set out to accomplish in life, turn around, extend a hand to those that are following us. Because whether we want to admit it or not, this is not a society that is truly accepting of minorities. And so to be in positions that we have all been in or are in right now, it's incumbent upon us to not only set a high standard for ourselves, but to make sure, you know, right or wrong, that we don't create a situation where they will never bring more minorities in to our organization, right? It's a really good challenge. To me, that's what it means to be a model minority. Well, Bud, Thank you. Yeah. I knew this was going to be a fun one and I knew we were going to cover a lot of ground. So thanks for being really open and honest about it too. Hey, thanks for having me and I appreciate it. 
And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. My dad had a big dream to come to the U.S. And first time I came to the U.S., I thought like I was an alien because we were in Staten Island and there wasn't really that many Koreans around and the food was different. So I always felt like, oh, I took a spaceship to the U.S. <laughs> Land use surroundings. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 